Love, I get so lost sometimes. Days pass, and in this emptiness fills my heart. When I want to run away, I drive off in my car. But whichever way I go, I come back to the place you are. Peter Gabriel. Welcome to the Silver Linings Playcast. I am your host, Jamie Ward. This is, as far as I know, the only podcast solely devoted to Silver Linings Playbook, the movie, and the Silver Linings Playbook, the book. Uh, We're doing things a little differently here. Um, We're not doing them differently in the fact that basically I said it's the only podcast about Silver Linings Playbook, and yet we almost never talk about Silver Linings Playbook. You might have noticed that we did a different intro. I just... I can't handle the happy theme song that I used to have. Uh, we're we're going to work on a new theme song. Um, things are not not great, but we're gonna we're gonna get by. Um, yeah, I'm sad. I lost lost the love of my life, and I love her. I still I still am so in love with her, but she hates me, and I don't um, know. Why completely? I know a lot of reasons, but anyway, but I don't want to make this about that. That's the point I'm trying to bring all that up about. Um, I don't want to make this just a, uh, um, a big, uh, BS podcast anymore. We got to get back to work. I can't sit around and just do nothing and be sad. So we're going to try, we're going to try to keep this on track. We're going to try to have a real episode this week. And if I, if I diverge, um, I apologize for that, but that's, that's how we're going to turn our nuns of listeners into tons of listeners because while nobody has any reason to listen to the actual facts and content that I do create when I do create, uh, they especially have no reason to want to listen to me complaining about how I am a failure at everything in life. And that doesn't matter because that's not the point of this all. It is, it is such a tough time. Uh, two, two of my best buddies are, are going through breakups this week, uh, in, in bad ways, like concerned, not, not so much about, about one. He's sort of a serial, uh, lover who, you know, every time I'm talking to him, he's in a, a new relationship and, but, but the other one, uh, uh, one of my best friends in the world going through something where I'm actually a little concerned for his safety. Uh, so that has been heavy on my mind and affecting my, um, mindset. Uh, but let's, but, but the first one, so one of the things I thought about is while I'm, while I'm being sad and alone, uh, what, what can I do? I always want to make myself better. Like what, what have I done wrong? How can I be better? How can I learn? and grow from these things. How can I be? And one of those is, uh, to be a better lover, you got to be a better friend, right? So I'm trying to, trying to do things to better understand my regular friends. Cause I'm not, I'm not a very good friend 
to them too. We fall off, uh, for long amounts of time. Uh, one of my best friends, I haven't talked to in over a year and I keep thinking every day. I'm like, I need to, I need to, I owe him a phone call cause I haven't even texted him. We, I sent him one text in, in a year almost, and he deserves better than that or, or deserves better in not being my friend. Uh, but um, one of my other, my, 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 uh, other friends that I was originally talking about, um, I'm, yeah, I guess I'm just lonely. That's why I'm talking about all my friends that I haven't seen in years or talked to ever. Uh, cause this friend moved away to Thailand. And so I haven't seen him in years and years, but when we used to travel all the time, he would always talk about, uh, the before trilogy of films. And that's what we're going to talk about today because I finally watched them. Like, what do I do? When I'm depressed, I watch movies and I try to process, learn things because I can't learn. Sometimes uh, the thing about movies is they're really great uh, fiction. It, it's been been the case throughout history. Movie, TV, radio, plays, story. story um, the stories that are good and resonate with people are ones that always have themes and are things where even if they're fiction, you can learn about truth and reality from them, right? And so I often, uh, because I, I don't have a lot of public available right now, um, and because uh, I spend so much time by myself, it's like, how are you going to learn these lessons that you used to learn out in, in the world? Watch movies. Maybe watch a better quality movies, not, uh, not the action or comedy flicks, but I've been going back and watching classic films and, and sort of like really good, deep, good storytelling films, good, good screenwriting films. And, and I'm realizing you, you do really learn things about perspective relationships and other people from them. And there's a beautiful, beautiful example that we're going to talk about today. And that is the first of the Richard Linklater uh, trilogy, the Before Trilogy. And this is um, something that we used to talk about all the time. I had technically never seen them. I say technically never seen them, like I've just straight up never seen them. Another reason I'm bringing this up is because this, this goes back to episode 22 of the Playcast. It was recorded on uh, November 26th, 2020, where I was listing the best couples in film and TV. And the thing that had sort of sparked that whole subject for me was that I had been watching uh, Better Call Saul, and I really liked the realism in the portrayal of the, the Jimmy McGill and Kim Waxler relationship, because it was not, it was not a fairy tale relationship, but they were people that were flawed and truly loved each other, at least through season four, which I, which I watched. And I really liked that. I really liked the fact that sometimes they would be mad at each other through the episode. Um, but they're, their love was stronger than that. They would still, they would still know that they were meant to be together. Um, but you know, I just, 
I like the honesty and the betrayal because that's the way things are in life. Like every single day is not going to be a picnic. Every single day is not going to be a fairy tale, but, but, but you have to learn how to sort of compartmentalize those, those fights and negative things, um, and decide, do I want this person more than I want to win this argument, which is actually a very interesting theme. It was originally what I was going to talk about um, in in the Silver Linings Playbook book that when when Pat goes to therapy, he comes out and he's really got this mantra where he's he's trying to say, I need to focus on being kind over being right. And I think that's such an important thing to do. Now, I'm not claiming to be perfect. I am not claiming that I'm able to do that, but it is a thing that that struck me uh, very, very deeply when I heard it the first time that I was listening to that book on audiobook, and it's something I'm trying to trying to do better at in my life. Right? Um, I am an overly logical thinking person, too analytical, too in my head, and so many times in emotional situations. I will try to technically win a conversation and sometimes that will put me at a disadvantage when, um, when in the larger spectrum of things, what I really want to do is be loved and be loving. And it's, that's really tough because that means sometimes, and I'm being very objective in, in a sense, this isn't a reference to anything specific. It's just like, if you're arguing with somebody about something, maybe you'll you'll admit to yourself that your position in the fight, while you might be correct, does not matter to you because being happy is more important. Now, this can be taken too far as well. This is not to say that you should give up on being your person, you know? Don't, um, like, sacrifice uh, being being a strong individual, who you are, doing things you need to do, standing up for yourself, especially if the matters are right. But it definitely means you have to look at situations as they arise and decide each one, is it more important that I win this fight? um, Or is it more important that I win doing the right thing with this person? So this is a, a very interesting theme that that I think would come up. So let's let's get into the movie I want to discuss because this this is a trilogy of films that if I had seen these before I did my list on episode 22, the best couples in film and TV, I completely would have put these these people at the top of my list. This is my new favorite fictional couple and the reason I mean it's it's a lot of people. There's a whole trilogy, three whole films and it's basically just them two talking the whole time, right? So the Before Trilogy, Before Sunset is the first one. No, no, I'm sorry. Uh, Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, Before Midnight. And these films were made nine years apart from each other. So 18 years encompassing the whole trilogy. Um... Before a Sunrise is a 1995 film. Uh, it's categorized as an American romantic drama. 
It was made by Richard Linklider, who is known for uh, Slackers, Dazed and Confused, Suburbia, The Newton Boys. Uh, I know him best from Waking Life, I think was the first movie I saw of his, which is fantastic. I love it. Um, one of the first uh, times I became aware of rotoscoping, which I'm a big fan of, and it's it's a big philosophy filled movie like literally literally just different scenes of people talking about philosophers and stuff uh most people probably know him from school of rock with jack black he did before sunset uh bad news bears remake fast food nation a scanner darkly which is another uh that was based on a philip k dick novel i believe but another rotoscope film um and the sci-fi sort of has a little uh, overlap with with philosophical themes. Um, Bernie Before Midnight, Boyhood. I believe Boyhood was uh, very, very acclaimed as a film. And that's not all his films, but that's sort of the major ones that you probably have heard of. And I just read that he is, it's announced he is going to be making a Bill Hicks biopic. So I am super excited about that. Uh, Bill Hicks is definitely one of my favorite comedians of all times. I guess I, if I don't even, if somebody was going to do it, I would want it to be Aaron Sorkin or, uh, Richard Linklater, I guess I'm saying that like, I'm not, it's, this is funny. I've become a Richard Linklater fan, but I, would never even have thought of like, Oh, that's a link lighter. I think I'm saying his name, right? It's, I believe it's pronounced link lighter. It's spelled L I N K A T E R. So it, it, I think it's, it's spelled like link ladder, link lighter, lighter, lighter. I don't know. I've always heard it pronounced link lighter. That's not the important part. So anyway, he made these three films and, and it's like each time one came out, it sort of surprised people because one, they were nine years apart each. And that's a really long gap to, to make a movie. That's a sequel to another movie. And also because one, they're so good individually. They, there was really no need to ever make another film after the first one before sunrise right and so it's actually really kind of crazy but he did so it's really neat because there are three films and what what eventually i mean you you sort of didn't understand this until the whole thing was complete and they're each so complete in their own respect but it's neat because it's such an authentic portrayal of sort of late levels of a relationship and, and, um, basically huge spoiler alerts. It's not even that important because they could, the plot is not super important. There's, there's not really plot in the same way. It's just sort of people talking, but it is a portrayal of the, uh, journey that a relationship takes of basically the first movie is like them meeting and falling in love. The second one is sort of them realizing they're in love. And then the third one is like after they've been together and what it's like, are they going to fall out of love or stay in love? Uh, 
and that reduces these films so much uh and it, it is sort of tragic that there's no the, the the only way to describe them is basically <laughs> to watch the whole thing they're short they're they're three short 90 minute films but they are so good so let's let's see more um info about before sunrise it stars ethan hawk and julie delphi Ethan Hawke, uh, most people probably know him. He's a pretty famous actor. Uh, but at the time he had made this, he um, the most notable stuff he had done, he had been in about, I think, uh, 10 movies or, and short films, but he had most, uh, mostly the Explorers, Dead Poets Society, White Fang, Alive, Reality Bites. And then he did Before Sunrise. And I don't even think that's really... When he he took off, uh, he did Gattaca. I think either the next film or or two films after this. Julie Delphi is a French actress who, and uh, she's done a number of American films as well, but really got her start in French films, French speaking films. Her first film was a nineteen eighty five film called Detective. I think it was actually titled something like Detective or something. I, I don't know the pronunciation. It's French word for detective but it was a, a film by uh, Jean-Luc Godard and it was a, probably not one of his best movies and I'm, I'm only saying that I'm going off the IMDB ranking was like 5.9 out of 10 Jean-Luc Godard uh, such a great uh, filmmaker that was just one of his later ones um, Julie Duffy was also uh, known from uh, Europa Europa which I've Red is a very good film that is on lots of lists of top 100 films ever made. And where I know her originally from is from the film White Blanc, uh, with a French film, um, French titled film. I guess it was actually made by Polish director Krzysztof Kieslowski. Um, he made the Three Colors trilogy which I was familiar with far before these, um, blue, uh, blue, uh, blanc and rouge, um, which are, which are the three colors of the French flag, blue, white, and red. Uh, again, oh, could go off onto a whole different podcast episode of, of not only about the trilogy, but about each one of those films individually. You could have the whole course on them. Some of the best films ever made. And I'm, say, I'm saying that in an objective sense. Like that, that a lot of people think they are very, very good films. Um, they're very interesting because they are, they're part of a trilogy and they're sort of spiritual successors to one another, but they are not exactly sequel stories to one another. That So... The, like the interesting thing, uh, Julie Delphi is sort of the main female protagonist in the the middle film White. She plays Dominique, but Dominique is a character that uh, makes credited appearances in the other two films, Blue and Red, but not like as a character that shows up or anything. And, and what I'm saying is like maybe the, um, there's characters that are going on in the background in the, in all three of those films, they happen in the same world, 
a sci-fi sense, like in the same universe, but the stories never necessarily, um, intermingle. I mean, like they, they do, it's hard to describe, uh, the, the thematically. And the other thing about them is so that blue is sort of like a, a really sad, tragic film. White is sort of thought of as the weakest of the three. It's kind of like a com a black comedy capery almost not not quite and then then red is uh very difficult to describe also because I haven't seen it in such a long time but uh white is is definitely thought of as like not not the best of the three, but they are all very very good um and so that's where I first knew her from. Uh, I saw those movies back in the two early 2000s, I guess. So I'm just going to read a little description so that we're all on the same page. This is the Wikipedia synopsis of Before a Sunrise. Okay. On June 16th, 1994, Jesse meets Celine on a train from Budapest, and they strike up a conversation. Jesse is going to Vienna to catch a flight back to the United States, where Celine is returning to university in Paris after visiting her grandmother. When they reach Vienna, Jesse asks Celine to disembark with him, saying that 10 or 20 years down the road, she might not be happy with her marriage and might wonder how her life would have been different if she had picked another guy, and this is the chance to realize that he himself is not that different from the rest. In his words, he is the same boring, unmotivated guy. Jesse has to catch a flight early in the morning and does not have enough money to rent a room for the night, so they decide to roam around Vienna. After visiting a few landmarks in Vienna, they share a kiss at the top of the Werner Wiener Reisenrad. I'm sure that's not how it's pronounced, but that's how it's spelled. Uh, at sunset and start to feel a romantic connection. As they continue to roam around the city, they begin to talk more openly with each other, conversation changing from topics about life, love, religion, and their observations of Vienna. Celine tells Jesse that her last boyfriend broke up with her six months ago, claiming that she loved him too much. When questioned, Jesse reveals that he had initially come to Europe to spend time with his girlfriend, who was studying in Madrid, but they broke up soon after. He was there. He found a cheap flight home via Vienna, but did not leave for two weeks, so he bought a Eurorail pass and traveled around Europe. When they're walking alongside the Danube Canal, they're approached by a man who, instead of begging, offers to write them a poem with a word of their choice inside. Jesse and Celine decide on the word milkshake and are soon presented with the poem Delusion Angel, written for the film by the poet David Jewell. A poem that Jesse cynically claims the man had previously written and just inserts the word of people's choice. In a traditional Viennese cafe, Jesse and Celine stage fake phone conversations with each other, playing each other's friends they pretend to call. Celine reveals that she was ready to get off the train with Jesse before he convinced her. Jesse reveals that he broke up with his girlfriend, he bought a flight that really was not much cheaper, and all he really wanted was to escape from his life. They admitted their attraction to each other, and how the night has made them feel through, though they understand that it probably will not see each other again. 
They decide to make the best of what time they have left, ending the night with the implication of a sexual encounter between them. At that point, Jesse explains that if given the choice, he would marry her instead of never seeing her again. The film ends the next day at the train station where, just as Celine's train is about to leave, the couple decides not to exchange any contact information, but instead meet at the same place in six months. Uh, so that is the film and, and it, it's, um, that is not the best synopsis of it because I, it, I, that synopsis really tries to take all the things that do happen and there's not that many. And it like really tries to turn that into the narrative of the film. And it's really so not the heart of the film. It's their conversation that it's this, it's, uh, it, it was almost uncomfortable for me to watch the first time because it feels so much like like watching young people fall in love, flirt, sort of bit like like when you ever see people on a first date and it's it's sort of cute to watch but it's also like uncomfortable because when you're not invested in their situation personally, it's like you can see how their nerves are keeping them from saying what they want and being who they want to be but they're trying and they go through this weird, beautiful dance. Um, like trying to, trying to learn about each other and, and tell who they are too. And it's clear that they both like each other, but like, they're not, nope, nobody wants to be the first one to sort of take the big risk too. So in that, in that sense, they really capture the reality of it in the, in discussions and it's, it, um, but they are so good together. There's so much chemistry and it seems so real too, that you are rooting for them too, in this painful way of like, there's, there's this realization that they keep talking. There's a lot of existential philosophy in this. And, and you sort of like, know that, that, uh, this is only gonna, they're only going to have this magical night over one night. And they have that, that discussion, like, that, um, or, are they ever going to meet each other again? At the end of the, the movie, um, they make plans to, they, they sort of make plans to meet at the exact same place, at the exact same time, six months from now. And then that's, uh, that is not actually where the next film picks up. The next film picks up nine years later and uh, this is where the spoiler alert comes in. They did not meet there. Ethan Hawke's character, uh, Jesse, becomes a writer. And then he basically writes... So this is, this is why it's interesting to know this, because this is all relevant to the first film, but it doesn't. you don't learn about all this until the second film, right? So Jesse becomes a writer, and he's doing a book tour in France, and that's where Celine sees that he is, is doing a talk at a bookstore and goes to meet him. And that's where they rekindle their relationship nine years later. They did not meet in the in-between time and she missed their meeting when they were supposed to meet at the train station six months later. It's, it's really interesting, uh, too, that they even, even in the uh, brief span of the 90-minute film, it's not uh, all, all good. They have tension rises at different points, but in that same way I was talking about, about like this being like a, 
a more beautiful and a more perfect fairy tale than most fairy tales, that conflict arises only for you to see that, that, that maybe as an outside observer, maybe they're more compatible than you even think because they're so wonderful together, right? It's funny that I think Ethan Hawke's character has, has those sort of impulsive um, instincts too because I, that's the way I sort of feel. Um, I literally uh, um, miss her so much and the funny thing is that if, if for some reason we had joked about getting married the very first time we met, I would have 100% percent uh, done that. And then everything would be different now. I still, I still would. I wish, um, I wish life had, was more cinematic and had happier, happier ways to go. Um, I wish I was living the before sunset film instead of uh what feels like the middle of before midnight right now i keep saying before sunset we're talking about before sunrise if you this the trilogy's titles if if you have figured out it has to do with uh the lunar solar cycles before sunrise sunset midnight it's just it goes in that order uh but but i think it's because before sunset is the most cinematic title of them all. One of the really interesting things about this is there's not many times where movies come out where people give higher scores, like IMDb scores or or, uh, Rotten Tomato scores that are higher for sequential films than the originals. This trilogy, they're all ranked very high, and I think most people's favorite film is definitely before midnight being well okay so like before sunrise being the be favorite because it's fun it's it's um young it's like a 90s film uh it's it's definitely is the the most fun one um people have watched that one numerous times whereas they have not watched the other ones as much. But like Before Midnight has a 98% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And uh, Before Sunset, that only has a 95. Right? And um, let's see. What does before before sunrise has one hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes, eight point one on IMDb out of ten, and seventy seven percent on Metacritic, right? So, uh, so it sort of depends on who you ask. Before sunrise, first one, seventy seven on Metacritic. Before sunset, ninety on Metacritic, and then before midnight, ninety four on Metacritic. Uh, before sunrise first one 8.1 on imdb before sunset 8.1 on imdb uh before midnight 7.9 on imdb so it's like i did those it's hard it's hard to objectively rank how good a film is uh, um because there's it's so subjective to what you like they're really all good they really can all be watched on their own but once you watch them all together, 
the experience is absolutely amazing. Now, something I learned is, is super, <laughs> this is super sad, but like I so get it too about, this is why I was saying that you needed to know about sort of the plot of Before Sunset, the second one. Let's just call them the first, second, and third one. That'll keep it more organized, right? So the reason you needed to sort of know about the second one is that there, there's sort of relation to the real-life inspiration of where the first film came from. Richard Linklater actually, um, I don't remember how long before uh, he made this film, the first one, before Sunrise came out, but he had sort of met a woman at a toy store in Philadelphia, and they sort of had like a whirlwind 24-hour romance and then tried to keep things up long distance and it, it uh, did not work and they they fizzled and they fell apart and then he made this film sort of hoping to re-meet her <laughs> kind of like how the beginning of the second film starts with the book unfortunately the film came out and he kept thinking, I would have heard from her. Why hasn't she gotten in contact with me? I thought uh, we had this thing uh, come to find out. She died before the movie came out. I'm, I'm laughing, uh, not because I think it's funny. It's incredibly sad. But also, um, like, I, I get it. Uh, maybe... I think, I think that's sort of like the, the artist's dream uh, in a way. Now, I was saying I didn't think that the description, the, the Wikipedia description of what the movie was about was a very good synopsis because it while it does uh, rehash everything in a very sterile detail, it sort of leaves out some of the important things too. Like at the beginning where the whole thing starts, that Jesse and Celine are on a train on the Euro rail and there's an old German couple fighting. They're just having an argument in German and, and you're not even meant to understand what it is, but it's clear that they're, they're like an old couple and it's the, the sort of laughing and trying to avoid getting caught up in that train argument that is what, what gives these characters an opportunity to sort of see each other, start flirting with each other. And then, then one of the fascinating things I find so much is that sort of they, they go on their, their day date and they're walking around and, and the, there's this progression in several ways, both in the amount of time these characters spend with each other in the progression of time over the course of the day, um, in the location that they go to, they go to different places. Like they go to uh, a place where it's sort of like a, a market fair where, uh, cause they said they go, they, they kiss on the top of a Ferris wheel or a sky, like a European sky ride. Um, they go uh, hang out in a cemetery, right? They go to a bar that uh, I, I would describe it in Atlanta as a very hipstery bar, but yet it's just a Viennese cafe. That's just the way they are there. <laughs> um, so there's really no reason to describe it. Uh, but, you know, so, so then like in the evening... They start drinking and then they have this cute game where they, like the description said, they start um, talking to each other 
in like in third person as if they were on the phone, not in third person, but as if they were their friends on the phone. And this kind of game is exactly the kind of thing that, that young people that are flirting with each other do because it's sort of in a comic way, lets them uh, test out some of their, their truer intentions without being able to, without making themselves truly vulnerable of just saying what they're feeling, right? This is the thing I relate to so much, especially like in comedy where people make jokes. Uh, I, I know that comics both in our act, but also then like when you're joking in real life, you sort of say things that are important, but then like you hide in, hide the feeling and, and jokes because then you feel sort of less emotionally accountable for if people respond to it poorly but yet there's there's some truth there too of like oh if something hurts or something sad this is why a lot of people make jokes about uh very tragic events um richard jenny was a was an amazing comedian one of my favorites and one of the most underrated too he uh, uh if you just listen to his act his albums they're comedically funny they're very funny um and i it's it's a shame that I would have to describe a comedian's act as funny, but there's so many comedians, and I, and I hate to say this because Bill Hicks is one of my favorites. His acts are not super funny, though. He is like this sort of uh, so, f- f- social philosopher that had sort of a comical way of describing things. Richard Jenny, though, was just a, a classic telling jokes, doing bits, making people laugh. And yet, even though he seemed so happy, like, well, didn't seem happy, like his persona was sort of angry, bitter, hurt. But there's a lot of that in his act when you dissect it. And why you find, you know, like that, that he was hurt and sad and going through a lot of things. Um... But there, so so Celine and Jesse are playing this game, and the thing that really struck me was her whole uh, that she was willing to go. She she seems very guarded through the first half of the film, like oh I'm I'm going along with this I'm adventurous, but like uh, it's really it's really made to seem like Ethan Hawke is convincing her to go along. He has to keep giving her these reasons that she has to justify herself. And then they start drinking and they get a lot closer and they're starting to like, according to the description, fall in love. And yet, uh, it's, it's at this point when they're having the discussion at the bar that Celine admits that, that she had sort of made up her mind far before she let him know too, that she was basically willing to leave with him as soon as the offer came up. Um, it just sort of wasn't proper. And that's one of the neat things about these characters too, that they're, they're both written in ways that are so authentic and recognizable. You see them, you, you see them, your friends in them, you see yourself in them. They seem like real people. And yet, if you just do a character breakdown of them, 
they're both just wonderful, wonderful examples of sort of dueling ideologies. And I don't mean just completely opposed because they, they are very complementary characters. They've become a wonderful couple. That's was the reason I'm doing this whole thing because they belong at the top of my list of best TV movie couples. But their conversations, they both sort of take opposing views, and that's the plot of the film. It's sort of having these discussions about love, life, religion, and philosophy. You have um, Jesse, who is a cynic, right? He, he believes in love and sort of sees himself as a romantic, how he describes him at the beginning and then as he goes on throughout the night, uh, this is this is very, very true to life, right? Like he's super playing the the romantic role towards Celine in a very sort of cinematic, classically romantic sense until until there's threats from other people. Right. This is just like what happens in, in real life where guys are trying to impress a woman with how sort of sweet they can be, how romantic they can be. And then when um, that woman may show interest in another person or, or the threat is observed by the male, um, suddenly the cynic will come out of him. And the moment I'm thinking of is sort of when, when the, uh, guy who is going to beg them beg for money but instead says hey i'll write you guys a poem and if if you like it you can pay me what you think is worth and Celine absolutely loves the poem and is like oh that was the that was the sweetest thing ever and then jesse is completely saying he probably just does the same poem for everybody and puts in the word that they say which is so funny because that moment uh, is <laughs> it's so real and it's it's the first time where you see oh his his character is not this perfect uh, romantic type that he sees himself it's it's not a huge plot point there where it like breaks down everything that he was it's just a little moment and it's it's the and it's the subtlety of these moments that makes these characters so great and the writing so spot on because these are the little tiny moments that do build into something but it gives his character depth too all right you don't have this character who's just oh he's sweet talking and saying the right thing the whole movie you develop this little conflict where oh was that guy just being nice and writing a poem um was he a threat to to jesse's character and then the total other side too. Uh, Julie Delpy's character, Celine, who is absolutely sort of like the European equivalent of of. I've only be, I've only been told this term recently by my friends, but apparently it's existed forever. Manic pixie dream girl. I don't even totally know what that means, but several of my friends have accused me of of saying that's my th I don't even know that can't be my thing that's not my thing I don't know what it is um 
what my friends don't know that much about me. Um, but I'm guessing that Selene is kind of like the uh, European version, which would make it just the regular. Um, this is very strange. I'm not. I'm. Uh, I don't really know how to describe it because I'm trying to describe a character. Okay, so similar similar characters that I've I've seen. Um, one of the the great examples, or the first example that I think of, is I'm already forgetting your name. I think Mickey from uh, the the show Love on Netflix um, is sort of what I'm trying to describe, right? You have these character, this character that's sort of very impulsive and free spirited sort of like a modern day hippie, right? These labels are kind of ridiculous, but, but they do appear in writing because it's the best way to try to convey a lot of information about a person's character using different stereotypes. And so like as harmful as it is, it's also helpful and sort of necessary when talking about characters in this way as well. So you have this character, Celine, who, you know, um, is this type of person because you have to be a certain type of person to just get off of a train with a stranger you've never met. But the thing about, and, and I think a lot of guys think like, oh, I would absolutely fall in love with somebody like that. That's like my dream girl, right? Um, and I, I think it absolutely is people that are just adventurous and, and weird. But you have to think too, right? If somebody will get off the train with you like that too, their attention is, and, and fascination will take them all sorts of places too. That doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing. It's not like she, I mean, you know, spoiler alert, she ends up with Jesse and she was never, there was no threat. She wasn't going to fall in love with the guy that wrote the poem. But from Jesse's standpoint, you can see that threat, which gets, which emerges at that point too. And it's just that realism that, that every moment, right? Like you see all the conflict depth and reality in this two minute scene, three minute scene in the film. Now take the other 87 minutes of the film and know he has those little observations the whole time. That's why it's so beautiful because in some ways um, you sort of know, like you know that then Jesse wants to sleep with Celine the very moment, like from the very moment the first words come out of his mouth, right? He's just sort of talking to the, this girl on the train, this pretty girl sitting across from him being like, blah, 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 you know, trying to open up a conversation. And people with any knowledge of men know that he's definitely like physically attracted to her. He doesn't know anything about her. He's, you know, he, he has not been given enough to sort of have an emotional connection, not saying that he wouldn't want to try. I mean, he's an adventurous guy too, right? He's on the Euro rail. He's, he's a free spirit and a, and a, sort of idealized romantic in a sense as well because he broke up with his girlfriend and, and now he's just deciding to to travel around Europe on the train, killing time, not doing anything specific. 
uh, one of the things I love about his character is he's like, I don't have enough uh, money for a hotel. So I was just going to wander around until my plane leaves. I get that. Uh, I, <laughs> right. I think most comics can get that. Fortunately, I've slept in a car a lot more. Um, but, uh, in the same sense, yeah. So he, um, you see that intent in the very beginning from his character. Uh, like I said though, cause I don't want to, cause he's not a terrible character. It's not one of those things too, where he's, he's one of those guys that, uh, well, I say, I think you could definitely have several readings of this movie too. I mean, I definitely don't think you'd be wrong if, if you felt like you watched this whole thing from what I've assumed would be a more feminist perspective and say, he's just trying really hard to sleep with her the whole time. And whether he wants to be in a relationship beyond that or not would sort of be upon up to the, the viewer's personal opinion, given this first movie only in the context of the first movie. And it's, it's sort of negating the very end of it too, because it's clearly he gets to the point where he says, um, he would rather marry her than never see her again. And yeah. Um, and, and the fact that, so now we, we flip back to her perspective and she's this person, um, that totally agrees with, here's the funny thing, right? Okay. So his, it was basically like his idea the whole time. Oh, let's have this amazing day, make the most of it. We're never going to see each other again. And then by the end of the movie, he's really gotten to the point where it's like, he would love to see her again. He wants to make sure that they, you know, Oh, we hit it off way more than I thought. Let's can, can we re-meet here in six months? And she's coming from this place of like, isn't it beautiful to have this day? Maybe we shouldn't. And then he convinces her into, okay, let's not exchange numbers, but let's do this in the most romantic way possible. Let's just meet here six months to the day, same spot, um, and just sort of organically spend another day together, right? Um, it's So this is something I'd be interested in. When does she decide that that she's game for that too sort of like my big question from silver linings playbook where I, where I always am curious about when do men think that the pat falls in love with tiffany when does the the men think that tiffany falls in love with pat and then when do women think that pat falls in love with tiffany and when does tiffany fall in love with pat i think that same question could be posed in a much broader sense over this whole film, uh, before sunrise. And you would get such different answers, not even just from men and women, but from specific men and women too, would, uh, th cause I think there's so many different points where it could have happened. I think I'm not even sure. So I feel like my guesses, and I'm clearly not an authority on this at all. Uh, I'm, so bad at this, um, uh, I, but I'm guessing, right? Celine said, I, I think they definitely have an attraction the moment they meet. 
you have to. I think people people know, especially because when you meet a stranger in public and you you strike up a conversation, there are people that are actually friendly and legitimately just want to have make small talk with people that they meet on planes, trains, at bars, and stuff. But there's also a difference between being cordial, saying one nice thing, like oh, seeing a couple fight, and you look over at a stranger and you're like, ah, oh, that's that's annoying, or huh, would hate to be those people. Wonder what they're saying. And then the difference between somebody who would keep that conversation going, there are some people that would keep that conversation going for the duration of the train ride, just because they're trying to kill time, and I'd much rather spend that time talking to somebody than uh, just just reading or, or thinking on my own. But then that whole idea of, oh, meeting people and then being like, I would like to keep this conversation going beyond where we are. I think that is definitely definitely a huge sign indicator too. These are the kind of things I didn't know. And I'm usually bad at, at knowing at seeing those signals, but I'm, I'm learning. Uh, I, you know, if I had to assess this movie even a year ago, I would not be as good at it now. Still probably miss a lot of things, but I am understanding people's simple, the fact that they will engage back in a conversation and keep a conversation going is in itself a certain level of acceptance. Now I'm saying that purely on a level of conversation too. Like there's, there's, and this is discounting people that are uncomfortable with shutting off conversations they want to, but in a film sense or in a sense when two people meet and both are contributing building into a conversation uh there there is an acknowledgement from both parties that they want to have that conversation going and then you keep escalating every level oh let's keep this conversation going beyond where we're geographically located if you're walking around with somebody that's a little bit more of a signal that oh there's some acceptance there none of it necessarily implies that either person is in love with the other person but they definitely are enjoying each other's company enough because they both, they both are given a lot of outs all throughout the duration of this film too, right? If either one of them stays on the train, then this movie never happens. Either one, like they're both able to travel pretty well. So if either one of them uh, can get back on the train at a different time, as soon as they're ready and leave, they don't have to wait until Celine's train or Jesse's plane um, they, they, uh, don't have to, um, make plans to meet up. They, they don't end up meeting up the six months later, but that's explained away in the next movie where they basically spend another day together and things progress from there too. So it's a very interesting movie. It might've been, hmm. Might not have been the best time in my life to to watch these movies, and yet maybe it was the perfect time in my life to watch these movies. I want to rewatch them; they're really great. Uh, that wasn't super in depth thought about them, but I've seen them; they're so good. You should watch them or not. Uh, they're some of my new favorites. Anyway, the whole point of it was that they should have been on my list from episode 22 the number one fictional 
couple from TV or movies, Celine and Jesse from the before trilogy. All right. Well, I think that was enough for this one. I guess I have not given up on doing a podcast. We'll see where this goes. We'll see where my life goes. We'll see where my decisions take me. I just want all of my nuns of listeners to know. And if anybody is listening, if there's any important people listening, if there's any people that know me in real life or close, which I imagine there's probably not anymore. And I've joked in the past that this podcast was not really real or for anybody, but it probably is literally just not for anybody now. But if there are, if there is, you are loved. Know that. Whether it's felt or understood or not. You are wonderful. And I miss you so much and I am the worst. I don't know. I just wish we could meet six months from now on a train forever. See you down the road. Excelsior.